0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Attention deficit disorders continue to demand a lot of clinical attention. Gil Lichtenstein is a child psychiatrist in South Florida, and he kindly agreed to discuss some of the core details about this condition. Dr. Lichtenstein, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It seems that we keep looking earlier and earlier for signs of ADD. How far back can we realistically go? Do we make mistakes if we go too far back?
1: Sometimes where some people might go wrong, sometimes defining age-appropriate behavior versus age-inappropriate behavior, especially in very young children, even like preschool-age children. The key thing is that the behaviors that the affected individual displays is age-inappropriate and starts to affect his or her functioning. So simply having a three or four-year-old child being hyperactive or impulsive by itself doesn't mean, oh, my child has ADD or ADHD or needs to be treated. Take a look at the bigger picture no differently than if someone presented saying, oh, I think I have ADD because I can't focus. Again, not focusing in and of itself doesn't mean ADHD. So three or four year old child, actually let's say a three or four year old boy whose parents or teachers say, oh, he's impulsive or hyper, makes a lot of noise in daycare. But if their behaviors are causing a lot of disruption, parents are getting calls every day, the child is putting their hands on other kids really out of control, then that's a different story.
0: Make the differentiation. If you were to put a kid on, let's say, Ritalin, who really did not have ADD or one of the AD spectrum disorders, would they all calm down anyway? Stimulant
1: medications are generally the first-line pharmacological treatment for attention deficit disorders. They have the same effect on individuals who don't necessarily even have ADHD, especially high school and college students to pull all-nighters or cram in for an exam or cram in to do a paper report at the last minute. My approach is that I'm not going to put a child on a stimulant just simply because they're a little hyper. For me to make a determination that 3, 4, 5, 6-year-old child truly has ADHD, I'm going to try to get as much input from much collateral information to really support that diagnosis and to make that determination that medication is needed. If a parent tells me my child is a little hyper, but they're doing well in school, they don't get into trouble, I don't get calls from aftercare or anything like that, I'm not necessarily going to immediately throw medication at them. When the behaviors become problematic or really inappropriate or over the top or extreme, then that's where
0: I tend to draw the line. What would be an appropriate intervention? So let's say like a test intervention to see if a kid really needed medication? What would you tell a parent to do if the kid was just I'm gonna use the word hyperactive, that may be the wrong word to use in this sentence, but you know, all over the place and impulsive and so on. What would be a, a reasonable approach? I often get referrals, oh my child had been tested for ADHD. Now there's there's really
1: no test for ADHD, but oftentimes, you know, parents might have their children undergo psychoeducational testing beforehand, more to see their academic strengths and weaknesses are, perhaps they might have a learning disability or auditory processing issue. Some of the tests in the psychoeducational battery can assess for tension and concentration. Other testing that might be used is something called the CPT or continuous performance test, which involves a child looking at a monitor and then pressing buttons when they see certain figures or certain letters that can also be a measure of tension or ability to inhibit whether they demonstrate adequate impulse control. Other tools that I might utilize are checklists like for parents and teachers to fill out such as the Connors Behavioral Checklist, the Vanderbilt, the Gordon Diagnostic or the ADHD Rating Scales. A lot of these checklists are very similar, they'll address some of the key or core symptoms of ADHD both the inattentive presentation or the inattentive type and the hyperactive impulsive types. If testing has been done, great. If not, I personally am not going to help parents go and get psychoeducational testing to confirm a diagnosis. So let's say a parent brought in a child and they've never been tested. We don't know what their IQ is. We never had anything like that done. I'm not going to assist that be done unless I suspect there may be a learning disability or, or something. But in addition to getting good history, I'll give the parents and teachers any of those checklists to really fill out and see what parents see, what the teachers observe, and then Combined with the history and any other supporting documentation, school records, things like that, that's sufficient to arrive at a diagnosis as long as there's
0: pretty accurate and consistent history of symptoms. Does it run in families if one sibling has ADHD or one of the ADD spectrum disorders? Is there a likelihood, increased likelihood, that one of his siblings will have it?
1: there is a genetic component now even though there's no like one gene that's been been directly attributed it is genetic what i see in my practice is i'll treat a child and it so happens that probably one or both of their parents have it and then the parent looks at themselves in retrospect and says you know i'm kind of like my my son or daughter and i've always been like that 40 years ago I mean, even though adhd existed the term adhd wasn't known back then a lot of times in retrospect parents look at themselves that a parent of a child with ADHD themselves has ADHD.
0: Explain, please, the difference between AD hyperactive type, attention deficit disorder, inattentive type. They seem like they're opposites in some respects.
1: Even though the term attention deficit disorder is really not a DSM-4 or DSM-5 term, in terms of the differences, predominantly inattentive presentation really doesn't display I'm not saying they don't display any hyperactivity or impulsivity, but they either don't have any prominent symptoms or have sub-threshold symptoms of the impulsive, hyperactive domain and vice versa with the ones who have predominantly hyperactive, impulsive presentation. There's some data that suggests that girls are more represented in the inattentive presentation or what people call it attention deficit disorder, as a result, they may not get into treatment as early as boys because sometimes or many times it's not uncommon that someone with, again, I'll use the term ADD for the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder inattentive presentation, they are the ones who don't get into a lot of trouble, they kind of skate by school, so they may not get into treatment until later in elementary school or middle school when work gets harder. There's some literature to suggest also that in some ways ADD may be more disabling in the long run, possibly because of that, and also they may be more associated with learning disabilities. So even though they may not be hyperactive or impulsive, nonetheless, it's not any less of a disabling condition than the hyperactive impulsive type or presentation. It might be a more negative effect than the hyperactive
0: impulsive subtype. When you see somebody and you reach the that there is some material that needs to be dealt with, what, what sort of cognitive or behavioral material is necessary or... Are medications alone sufficient? That's a great question
1: because a lot of times parents get a little leery when the idea of medication gets presented to them, especially with the younger kids. But I try to discuss with them what the literature suggests, and I bring up the MTA study, the multimodal treatment ADHD study that was published actually, I think it began in the late 90s, and then they have had long-term follow-up throughout the last decade. What it really showed, this was a multi-site Studies comparing kids with ADHD utilizing an arm of medication only. I believe the medication was methylphenidate, immediate release. They were getting behavioral modification, behavioral interventions at home, which is really kind of nowadays kind of unrealistic unless you have an endless amount of, of income, plus some behavioral modification alone, behavioral modification with medication and community treatment, which, which involved going to their pediatrician and getting medication. What it showed is that medication alone was just as effective as medication plus behavioral modification for the core symptoms of ADHD. So it would suggest that for ADHD, you could get away with just medication alone. It doesn't mean that therapy doesn't help. And and usually, it's more like behavioral therapy, utilizing like rewards, consequences, addressing negative behaviors, avoiding reinforcing positive behaviors, more of a kind of like behavioral interventions than real cognitive behavioral or insight oriented personal therapy. It's the non pharmacological approach will involve that, plus perhaps parent training, helping the parents stay consistent in the behavioral programs they implement at home. Perhaps it can even involve working with the schools to implement similar in you know, the behavioral modification program at school if even feasible. That's probably the best approach in terms of if one didn't want to go with the medication route.
0: If you started a medication pre-puberty, before puberty, is it considered to be equally effective post-puberty, or do they outgrow their ADD? Patients who
1: think, you turn 18, you know, I'm going to outgrow it. Now, that's not totally true, but it's not totally false. Not everybody with ADHD continues to have it as adults. 60 to 70% continue to have symptoms as adolescents and probably about 50% into adulthood. That means 50% in theory outgrow it. 50% continue to have ADHD as adults. Now, does it mean that necessarily all those 50% still need to remain on their medication? Not necessarily. I've had patients as they've gotten into adolescence and young adulthood who perhaps have continued to have symptoms but have managed to get off their medication. They've been able to develop strategy on how to handle demands of school or job or life off medicines. They may still have symptoms of ADHD I've had others where they've continued to stay on the medication. Despite getting older and perhaps being better able to negotiate time management and get better organized, their deficits are still significant enough where they need the medicine to kind of help them be more efficient and effective in managing time and task
0: organization. There is this common notion of comorbidity and we see it in regard to mental health issues all the time. And comorbid means there are at least two conditions to the point where we have to worry about it because of its frequency with depressions, bipolar disorders, personality disorders, medical disorders such as sleep disorders. What's the overview on the comorbidity issue? You brought up one comorbidity
1: that, at least in child and adolescent psychiatry, is a raging issue. If you look at the DSM criteria for ADHD and the DSM criteria for bipolar disorder, there's a lot of overlap in symptoms. Even with some of the changes the addition of a new disorder called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder to try to help tease out kids who've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, there's still a lot of comorbidity with ADHD and bipolar disorder. There's some studies that show that even that in children with bipolar disorder that up to 100% of children have had ADHD and there's some there's some camps that believe that perhaps even ADHD might be a precursor diagnosed with bipolar disorder in early adolescence had a diagnosis of ADHD about four to five years earlier. so. There is probably some comorbidity with bipolar and mood disorders, ADHD is a a major risk factor for the development of conduct disorder but again, not every child with ADHD goes on to develop conduct disorder and then antisocial personality disorder. Certainly ADHD is is a risk factor for conduct disorder. There is probably increased amounts of sleep disturbance in children with ADHD. I don't know about frank sleep disorders itself but I would say at least in my practice ADHD and comorbid disorders are probably the, the rule rather than the exception. Mood disorders, anxiety disorders, learning disabilities, but again, there's no pharmacological treatment for that. But the big thing too is in substance use disorders, perhaps you see that more in adolescents and adults than in younger children.
0: I know a lot of people who get into cocaine or other stimulants, and they've discovered that the illegal drugs or the illegal use of stimulants is in effect treating their own underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed ADHD issues. And that's very possible,
1: and some literature also shows that treating kids and teenagers with stimulants actually can be a protective factor to minimize or lessen the risk of developing substance use disorder later on in life. Giving a child or adolescent self a phetamine or methylphenidate actually protects them from lessens the risk developing a substance use disorder later on in life.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. And I think the Bottom line issue here is that if a parent has a question about behaviors in their child, they should speak to somebody who knows the literature, who knows how to properly make a diagnosis and act accordingly. Gil Lichtenstein is a child psychiatrist in South Florida. And again, sir, thank you so much for being with us and discussing what is a very major concern to a lot of families. We appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.